come. I sing of a splendid dream, a mighty marvel that came at midnight when the tongues of men are silent. A strange tree, most wondrous strange, stretched forth branches in the blast of light. Each beam showed brilliant, bright as noon, gold glanced from every gap. Gems crusted that corner of earth, five jewels blazed from the crossbeam, while angels Empyrean flung their fiery gaze upon the gallows. No sinner's scaffold was this. All the fairest forth-brought ones with wakeful witness met the marvel. Welcome to the first ever Literary Hour on the Doomer Optimism podcast. That was a short selection from the beginning of a new translation, relatively new translation of uh, The Dream of the Rude, which was translated from the Old English by Tessa Carmen and Jane Charles, both of whom are joining us today. And my co-host today is longtime friend of the podcast, but first time host going Godward. Um, and uh, so Jane and Tessa translated did this wonderful translation of Dream of the Rood, which you can read in the Lamp magazine or online on the Lamp magazine website. Um, and if you haven't seen the Lamp magazine, it's a wonderful uh, and eclectic uh, Catholic arts and culture magazine. Um, that has uh, now been going for, I remember when it first started, when Matthew and William first started, and it's been, it's, it's stood the test of time so far. It's been, you know, these, these projects tend to kind of pop up and disappear really quickly, but the lamp has stuck around. Um, and uh, Jane is also a playwright and a poet. Uh, and we can talk about her play later. It would, you know, doesn't just write plays, but writes plays that actually get published and performed. So that's pretty cool. And um, Tessa's writing is all over the place, too. Uh, we can link to some of it. Um, so uh, welcome, both of you. Uh, let's start with your translation of Dream of the Rude. When... Well, let's start here. How the heck did the two of you learn Old English? <laughs> we learned it at my kitchen table. <laughs> we just, were neighbors and we just decided to start Anglo-Saxon Club. And a couple of us would get together every Monday night and kind of hack through some Old English. I, and I, I, I want it to be clear, I do not know old English so if you were to ask me to speak old English that would not work um so I think I think something I did learn from this is that um the the process of doing a translation is a it's a learning process and it, it's a great way to become familiar with the language so maybe if you've wanted to learn a language and you've thought well I could never translate out of that because I don't know it learning a language and translating out of it can really go together that was my experience at least um so I, I I learned so much about old English from translating in it and we I want we actually want to tackle another poem together um and I'm hoping that I'll just learn so much more of it so but we just learned it together <laughs> we know English modern English pretty well we do so we figure that would help in yeah, making that translation um 
Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, we don't, we, uh, we're, we're learning, we're learning old English, but, um, uh, and yeah, continuing to learn it, but, uh, I feel like the, yeah, what we wanted and Jane can talk about how we actually started doing the poem, but I think the, there's a certain flavor of old English and that, that culture that I think we both found, you know, even just reading the, reading old English, reading it aloud and that we did want to, you know, that kind of indefinable, indecipherable thing, that, that spirit of the thing that we wanted to bring into modern English that we hadn't seen quite done in the way we wanted to, um, you know, how, how do we bring this to modern English in uh, a way that captures the spirit of, you know, or the spirit that we see, because it's a translation is always, it's always a new thing. You're always making something new uh, with any translation. So adding to, to that kind of work of translation of the poem, that's what we want to do. So I'm really curious about, I don't know a ton about um, Old English poetry or how many poems were written in Old English. And I'm just curious what led you, and maybe you're going to talk about this, um, what led you to translate this particular poem? And, you know, how many did you have to choose from that's kind of in this genre, I guess, of poems? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I'm looking around because I have a book of sacred poems in Old English, but it is a genre. There's There are a number of these religious poems from Old English from around the nine and ten hundreds or the, you know, um, there, there aren't a ton, but there are enough that it's a discernible block of literature. The way that we picked this particular poem was I was at Hobby Lobby shopping for Christmas decorations and Matthew Walter called me on the phone and said, do you know anyone who knows Old English? <laughs> and I said, well, I kind of know Old English. And he said, well, do you want to translate the Dream of the Root for us? And so he had kind of his own reasons for wanting this particular poem to be translated. Um, with, they were really, they're really interesting reasons. And I, I think he's spoken about them before, but he was really interested in casting a, a light on the symbol of the tree. Um, and the, the idea that the, the cross and the tree, the tree with all of its kind of pagan elements, um, you've got, you know, the tree of Thor and you've got the, the tree as a, it's coming out of the earth, it's pulling its strength from the earth, it's a bit of a pagan symbol. And the cross, um, the cross is the, the redemption of that symbol even. So whatever force there is in the pagan sign gets taken into the Christian sign. And so we don't just, when, when we talk about the cross, um, we, we, we are also talking about the, the, the regenerative force of those more ancient signs. So that was kind of where he was wanting to go with it. Um, and I had worked on this poem before, sort of in passing, amateur. I'd done some tinkering with it. So I thought, oh my gosh, this is just a great opportunity. Um, 
But yeah, we do want to do some more of these because there are there are a lot of these Anglo-Saxon religious poems and they've got this um, great, um, I mean, force is the only word I can think of for it, where they, the, the, the power in them just comes out in this really deep, um, explosive way. And sometimes when you see the Greek ideas of Christianity, which is what most of us live with, are these sort of Greek, Greco-Roman ideas of Christianity, um, it's a lot more philosophically structured and there's a lot of reasons for that, but you see God as sort of a philosophical notion and he's a really pleasing one. Imaginatively, it is really pretty satisfying. But then when you go into this Anglo-Saxon literature, you get this other sense of God where he's not a philosophical notion. Like God as being is not really present in the Anglo-Saxon idea. You have God as an active force. Um, and I know that God as being is active. I know that. But when we hear the word being, it sounds static to us. And the Anglo-Saxons don't have an idea of a static God. That's not a thing. Um, so when you have, yeah. So when you have Christ in an Anglo-Saxon poem, he's a young hero. He's a king. He's a ruler. He's a warrior. And that's not necessarily how we think of him coming from the Greco-Roman tradition. So I'll stop there because I know Tessa has thoughts on that too. Yeah, I, um, what's really interesting about Old English, Anglo-Saxon is you have, you know, what the great, great, great grandmother of our mother tongue before Latin and French influence, you know, pre-Norman uh, invasion. And that the language as it was then is so earthy. It's so, I think it's such great fun. And I love French, but there's, you know, French softened everything, um, softened the edges of this kind of rough earthiness of uh, old English. And like Jane was saying, the kind of images that come from this, the poetry of that culture are so grounded uh and you have yeah you have those images of king and hero and things coming those images coming from the earth and we get you know we get earth and trial you know from from this uh from you know from this stream and side note we can talk about the yeah just the wonderful well i guess this is the thing right talking about symbols is the symbols are still alive in even though we live in a world that's feels very mechanical the english we use is very mechanical and through kind of kind of almost this old english resource amar you know calling up kind of this earthy spirit from uh from previous ages and bringing it to life in an accessible modern way that yet reveals this stuff is still alive this is still you know trees still um you know tree and cross and you know the the idea of troth those things are all still here and one thing i keep thinking of kind of in in connection with anglo-saxon old english poetry now is uh, after studying a little bit of St. Ephraim's poetry, 
uh, speaking of, you know, kind of not really Greco-Roman stream of the Christian tradition, but more Semitic, the Syriac tradition, he called Christ the Lord of symbols. Hmm. That's, that's kind of how I think of uh, one way that old English poetry uh, is so valuable as it brings one stream of that tradition that just enlivens that truth where creation is I mean that's the great thing like trees like there's this they're a pagan symbol but at the same time like who made the tree and who uh you know it's it's we who have been enchanted by maybe pagan associations or something or you know modern associations that would treat the tree as just this mechanical thing but we are the ones that need to be disenchanted of that spell and see truly, you know, the tree and the cross as it is. So mm -hmm. anyway, you I know, think I, I had no, oh, sorry. I was going to say, yeah. I had no, I was not acquainted with this poem at all until I read what you all did and, and published in the lamp. And my first thought was what a story of redemption, you know, with the tree and how, how, you know, God is using nature. He's using something that has been fallen, corrupted, paganized, and redeeming it. You know, I just thought that was so beautiful, and it came out so clearly in your translation. That was something that stuck out to me, something that Jane just said, and what you reiterated. I'm really glad to hear that. That's lovely. Yeah, yeah that that's what that's what we're going for. It's mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So Very redemptive. That was the that if I had one word I had to use explicitly, that would be it. Yeah. 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 There's a line from St. Ephraim, one of his hymns, that uh, has really stuck with me. I hadn't thought of St. Ephraim in a while. It's like St. Ephraim, we, <clears throat> in the Eastern Church, we read his prayer during uh, Lent. Hmm. Um, but uh, blessed is the one who has not tasted the bitterness of the wisdom of the Greeks. Blessed mm -hmm. is the one who has not relinquished the simplicity of the apostles. And I've always that that weighs on me a lot. Oh, that's amazing. As someone who's, you know, definitely tasted the bitterness of the Greeks probably too much, you know? Uh yeah, it weighs on me a lot. Um, but it, I mean the ways that you were describing the old English church tradition remind me a lot of at least some of what i get in the in the orthodox church um mm -hmm. and of course i guess the old english church is pre-schism so it is yeah. like it's all it's a shot it's a common yeah heritage for both the um the east and the west so uh yeah, this poem is is likely pre-schism as well we don't know when it when it was written exactly but it's it's almost certainly pre-schism and it um that the the tradition of venerating the cross is a really interesting one it it developed over time people didn't venerate the cross right away um but it is kind of that it's a specifically english contribution or, or anglo-saxon contribution to the faith but it 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 kind of overleaps the the romance regions and it, it's byzantium and england are I had no idea. Boring. That's fascinating. It's really, really interesting. I didn't know about that either until I started researching for this translation. But you don't really see it coming from 
Rome or France or Spain, they of course adopted it, but it is it it really has its roots in in this English church, and then there's a little bit of it in Byzantium and in the Holy Land as well. It's a really interesting tradition. Yeah, one, one question. Oh, go ahead. Go for it. Yeah, please. Sorry, Donald. No, oh, go ahead. Go. Okay. Okay, I'll go. Um, I was just thinking about. I don't. I was just thinking when this was written. I don't know what literacy was like. I don't know how many people were able to read. I don't know where this would have been read. Who would have had a copy of it? That kind of thing. But I was curious. And now that I know it was, you know, probably pre-schism, how do you think this poem was utilized in spreading the gospel? in growing the early church? Was it used? That's a really good question. Um, the history of the poem is pretty spotty. So like I said, we don't know who wrote it. It was it was gone for a long time. There were only a, a handful of copies of it. So it kind of vanished. And people could see traces of it in other literature, but we didn't have a complete copy of it until, and I honestly don't remember when we found it again, but it's like Beowulf. Beowulf was gone for a long time and we didn't find Beowulf again until Tessa, like the 1800s. Is that right? Yeah. Maybe even more recent. I mean, yeah. Tolkien made it more known, but. Yeah. So this, this whole literature was gone and was um, partly because of the the destruction of the English monasteries, a lot of stuff was gone. But there were also, I mean, there were things before that. There were just so many wars and this stuff got lost. Um, so it's kind of speculative what role this would have played in English Christianity, English Catholicism, as it was at that point. But um, it, cer it certainly would have been orally passed on. Um, because that that's the way that the tradition worked. Obviously, it was written down at some point because we have manuscripts of it and stuff, but it would have been an oral thing. And it, it probably would have been kind of in that tradition of Beowulf. It might have been sung so that it would have it likely would not have been used from my understanding. Some listeners might have more insight into this, but it likely would not have been used in a strictly devotional sense because it's kind of under it, it kind of functions as like a heroic tale um it, it's got more it has a lot of the secular poetic elements but obviously there's a lot of crossover between the sacred and the secular and there are points in the poem where there's a more secular or mundane word and option and there's a sacred option and they consistently pick the sacred option so in those moments in the poem where the the poet could have made something that was more connected to um, war or something that would have grounded it in a, in a secular sense. They tend to ground it in something more sacred. So it, the idea of kingship was sacred. Um, so it's tended it it they tend to ground it in those sides of the language. So from my understanding, it would have been recited orally. It likely would have been sung. I doubt if it would have been used in a liturgy of any kind, um, but that I might be wrong about that. So maybe there's a listener with more insight. Yeah, our, the listeners of Doomer Optimism are very knowledgeable about Old English. 
in the early uh, in the history no. of English Christianity. So much overlap in old English and agrarian culture. There's oh I my god! So I'm I'm sort of joking, but honestly, we attract a very interesting cross section of people. Sure. So I wouldn't be totally surprised if um, uh, someone out there. So someone will send you a great note about this. It'll be awesome. <laughs> I hope. I hope so. Um, yeah, we. <laughs> Yeah, who even knows? It's the the collection of people that have um, sort of uh, coalesced around this is really uh, really something else. Well, just a quick note on that agrarian yeah. sensibility, because your listeners will probably really like this. The last line of the poem um, is I I can barely read it without crying, but I'm going to give it a give it a crack. This is the last stanza. Um, triumphant and joyous was his journey below him being Christ. The sun's plowing was prosperous for he led plenteous hosts, great crowds of souls into God's country. The soul mighty wielder, much sung by many angels and the holy saints, heaven's citizens, whose happiness was forever fixed when their hero came, almighty God to where his homeland was. So that that last line, the word homeland is a really particular word in the Anglo-Saxon. Um and it there's a, there's a lot of different ways it's been translated, but we settled on homeland and it's got this sense of um it's it's not just a it's not just a place that you live, but it's a place that you've been sort of like pushed upward from um is the the sense within it that it's your it's your mother in in an interesting way when you when you go to the original because there's a lot of different words that the poet could have used to communicate you know um the kingdom or the homestead or the property there's there's various words for that it's it's a very rich language in terms of agricultural and agrarian words because that's how the society functioned so this word homeland um there's this there's this deep sense of christ um in returning in 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 returning to his homeland to where his homeland was there's this sense of like a cycle closing um and it, it's it's really a beautiful it's a beautiful word and it it doesn't make sense to most readers today because we don't have those um agrarian or those those deep roots in the land but your readers might really enjoy the poem for for those notes if they haven't read it yet yeah I love that the thought of of homeland kind of being the place where you belong where you ultimately belong yeah so Jane something you said earlier about translation as a way to learn a language brought to mind Herbert Jordan who is not lauded very often, but I really think did the best translations of Homer. Hmm. Uh, Iliad and Odyssey, University of Oklahoma Press published them. I got I got to interview him actually, and he's um he's uh he's an he's an old man now, but he uh <laughs> he was inspired to translate the Iliad with the death of the untimely death of his son. As a grief project, and he learned Homeric Greek and translated the Iliad at the same wow. time. 
you know, he was, I think, using like Farr's uh, textbook on mm -hmm. Homeric Greek, and he was learning Homeric Greek, and he does it in blank verse. I mean, it's an amazing achievement. And then he went back and did the Odyssey later. He was a lawyer, you know, he wasn't the classes, uh, uh, a train, you know, a classicist. Um, but you know, uh, yeah, he learned by translating. Um, That's splendid. So, uh, and I think if a lot of major translations are like that, uh, that that the technical skill in a language doesn't make one a good translator. The translation is some kind of mysterious other thing. Um, so thinking of I'm thinking about the two of you gathering at your kitchen table to learn Old English together, which is an amazing image uh, <laughs> of 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 neighbors. Um, and and also to how awesome it is that the two of you are professional translators from the Old English. How many people can say that in the world? You too, and maybe no one else. I don't know. <laughs> uh, and so the 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 something I'm really curious to talk about. I think all of us are parents. Is finding, you know, okay, a love of literature, a love of reading. Finding time to read can be hard in itself sometimes, but okay, doable finding time to read, finding time to write harder, you know, finding the time and wherewithal to, to learn, to study a language and to translate poetry harder still. So going Godward for you too, but all everyone here, I'm just curious about how you, you know, that, that sort of life of the mind and uh, writing life and parenthood motherhood like how how to uh put those things together because obviously they're not impossible to put together as evidenced by all of your work i mean jane you wrote and then had performed a play so um anyway i'm, I'm really curious about how as i find it uh hard in my own life uh with my children to you know hear stories of um like what william faulkner not coming to his own children's birthday parties, like his famous line to his daughter, like, you know, no one cared about Shakespeare's daughter. It's what he said to her when she <laughs> begged him to come to her birthday party. Okay, so hopefully none of us are doing that. Um, but then none of us are William Faulkner. So anyway, just open to all of you. I'm curious. Well, I, I will say that I might cheat a little bit because my husband also translates and studies languages and that helps um he knows far more than i do uh far more languages because he's willing to give up reading in english so he can you know study all the other languages um but i think i think that's one thing is is you know you you know you give up you give up some things in order to do the things you want to do um, and I, I think my husband and I have given up, I, I don't, you know, we don't feel like we've given up stuff, but we, but maybe other people think we have, uh, in order that, so that we can, you know, do, do what we'd like to do. Um, but I think, I think one thing 
with the reading life, the writing life, and poetry especially, the maybe perhaps the biggest thing that I maybe one of the biggest things I think about with regard to that, and I think about, you know, women and work. I've been thinking about this for years, just like, you know, how to be a mother, how to be a writer and all this stuff. But we have a great opportunity to rediscover books and poetry in community. Um, And there's great value in finding, I mean, you want to, I think everyone should have the time um, and, or help each other to find the time to have alone time to pray and write and do it or do whatever, you know, to paint, to compose, you know, whatever your thing is. Um, that's just life giving. That's going to help you be a better parent, etc. But also uh, one way my husband and I read plays is we have over people and we read them and our kids just have to sit and listen. Um, <laughs> we have a poetry night and uh and now my kids are old enough that they uh, had some poems they wanted to recite at my ladies' poetry night. My my son stayed up with us and was very excited to share his poems. So so we let him we let him stay up. Uh, but it, but that's also how you know this is how I learn music right now. This is how I practice songs I want to practice. Is when we get together with groups of friends and we sing them together or we have dinner with some friends and then we, someone brings out their guitar and thankfully they have a guitar and they know how to sing, you know, the Irish songs we like. And so we can join in. Uh, So many things we can do together that we forget that we used to do together. Um, Dancing, you know, my husband and I could go out on a date and just us dance, or we could have a dance. And everyone can be there, including our kids. So that's that's one thought I'll offer um, at the outset. Just as a side note, a quick aside, and then someone else should jump in. The disappearance of partnered dancing from American culture. Yeah. Something I think about all the time. And it's not commented on. Very often there was a shift from partnered dancing to everyone dancing alone together yeah. on a dance yeah. floor. And very, I think, indicative of a general like atomization, pulling away of you know, like that's such an intimate thing to hold someone and dance. Anyway, uh, think that's about it all the time. If Yvonne Illich had helped with the Barbie movie, it would have ended with Barbie and Ken dancing together. And Whit Stillman, I think, is our like last great. Like he always has partner dancing in his and his uh, films. Um, but everyone, I mean, dance, I think film is actually one of the last places like the dance scene is always part of a courtship sequence. Mm-hmm. 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 Um, but how often is that the case? You know, I mean, I, yeah. how, when was the last time I did partner dancing? I don't know, I guess at a wedding is maybe the, you know, but anyway. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. There's so many joyful things we can recover. And mm-hmm. I, I think I, I'd like, I want people to know that it's okay. It's not LARPing. It's not. <laughs> <laughs> it's not LARPing. <laughs> it's 
that you that you said that you kind of free people of of feeling like they're LARPing when they're really just pursuing the good life and yeah. they're just enriching their life with beautiful things that create intimacy with the people that they love. And I mean, it, it really is just the good life. Mm-hmm. Um, I think people have, have been sold a bill of goods about what the good life actually is. Mm-hmm. But the children gather in the of my house to fight with foam swords. That is LARPing. Mm-hmm. That term should be restricted just for people who like put on cost funny costumes and fight with foam swords. <laughs> uh, well, this is, this is where I started thinking about dancing. Uh, was at a Renaissance festival that I was part of in high school, and it was it was not one of those vendor fairs. We looked down on the vendor fairs. We <laughs> on the hand did not have any money, but we had a lot of heart and talent, and we tried to actually you know, do historical reenactment. But that was what struck me was that all these people from, you know, maybe well, some of us liked playing video games and watching Monty Python at home, but here we can actually do human things together and it's not weird. Yeah. Get together and have a pub sing. Whereas at home, maybe we just, it's only cool to go to the club, but here we can, and here we can do partner dancing and here we can kind of, treat each other like men and women and with some sort of grace that that is hard to find elsewhere i've never mm-hmm. been to the club you know maybe someday. i also have not been to the proverbial club i've been to the proverbial club like two times how was it and it was loud and very overstimulating and that's why it went a couple of times because it was like <laughs> <laughs> Essa, have you too been too loud the- too too much stimulated too yeah. much stimuli just no. i don't i don't think i've been to a real one i've been to a place that has drinks and has a dance party afterward and i awkwardly you know stay at the table because i don't know I, I don't know what to do if there's not partner dancing i maybe we're missing out maybe this is where convivial life is happening <laughs> No, no, it's not happening. There's no life. It's just, it's, it's just death. There's only, only death. Oh, okay. Yeah. In a okay, but I'm really curious to hear uh, Jane and going Godward to hear that uh, you know, about you about you know reading life and writing life, thinking and and motherhood, how it all comes together. I would just say two two things. First of all, I do get a lot of help. My husband is awesome, and if I ever Um, you know, if I need, if I'm working on something and I need an hour on a Saturday, he'll take the kids to the park or something like that. So it's definitely not whenever there's a, whenever there's a creative partner in a marriage, it, it's not alone that the other, the other person is, they're really chipping in. So whenever, like if I make something, it's also, he did something to help make that possible. And then I'm also really blessed with um my in-laws are great and we're we're in town with them so they take the kids for long periods of time for like a whole day or sometimes a day and a night um and that that's just really really helpful so with this play when I was writing it I'd written most of it just in the evenings or uh, you know after the kids went to bed and then it got to the last like scene basically and I thought oh my gosh I'm I've got to stick the landing on this thing and I don't, I can't do it in half hour blocks. 
So I just took a retreat, like a three-day retreat, rented a cheap Airbnb. Tessa actually came um, and another friend of ours named Betsy, um, Betsy, Betsy Brown. You should look her up. She's a really good writer too. But the three of us just went to this Airbnb and we worked for about two days and I was able to finish the, the play at that point. So I think that there's a, there's a balance of you do just do it when you have the time, but then it also is, at least for me, it's really essential to be able to like once a year or once every other year say, Hey, I need three days to finish this or two days and I can, you know, really get it done. Um, The other thing I would say for me is it's like, I think I'm one of those people like I'm definitely the and I, I've noticed this more as I get older I'm a lot more of kind of the the like desperate artist like I won't eat I won't sleep I'll just like drink coffee and wine and it, it's it can get kind of bad so like I have to build in time to do these things because it, it's how I stay healthy. So if I'm writing every day, I'm a pretty functional person. But if I go a week or two and I haven't written anything or I'm not doing some reading, um, it really starts to, it, it, it starts, it starts to like take a toll on like, I, like I start forgetting things. I don't get my kids to school on time, just things like that. Like it kind of everything starts to fall apart. So it's a little bit of a survival thing for me <laughs> if I'm not making time for it it's definitely going to show um and I, I don't know if that's the case for everyone but that's definitely been the case for me I've learned like it's worth everyone's time to just give me half an hour to read or write every day because it, it's really going to start to show otherwise mm-hmm. 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 well I'm in a totally different season of life now my kids are 20 and away at college and 17 because he's a senior so I don't have littles when I when my kids were little I read all the time and I, I was actually talking to someone this morning and I can recall there were times that I was in the middle of something engrossed and things got burned like cooking you know dinner so I'm like oh the noodles now have stuck to the bottom of the pan <laughs> and the water has completely cooked out and we're not going to have noodles now for dinner so um I can remember being like that and I can remember staying up at night and just reading because, you know, you're busy during the day with kids. You're not, you're not really available to sit and just give all of your attention to, to a book or something like that. And I have about, oh, I don't know, 30 different things that I've started writing that I've not finished because I've moved from mom into a professional role as a therapist. And I've been doing that for, for quite a while. And it's hard to go between academic and clinical writing and creative writing. So it would take kind of like a detox from the world of writing treatment plans and doing clinical work to writing something creatively. So I think that's why a lot of my stuff right now doesn't get finished because it's just really hard to switch gears. And so what happens is when I'm writing clinical stuff, it gets flowery. (laughs) It gets, you know, so (laughs) rather than writing like academic stuff, it's like, you know, talking about a person's soul in like some secular clinical setting. And they're like, wait, you can't put that in here because we got to build Medicaid and they don't know what soul is. So you can't do that. Um, So it gets, it's not good for me. Um, There are many things that I want to write that I want to complete. People have asked me to write things and I've started them and I'm like, I don't know when I'm going to get this to you, but I'm chipping away at it. So I'm not a good person to talk to about 
you know, carving out time or completing things in terms of writing, um, because I start a lot of things and don't finish them just because I don't, I'm not living in that writing world right now. But you're a and reader. I am a reader. Yes. Um, currently finishing up uh, Desert Solitaire. I'd never read Edward Abbey. And everybody's like, oh, you got to read this. So finishing up that, which is remarkable and definitely in the Doomer Optimist vein, I think, um, if, you, if you're in that crew. But I don't really have any good words other than, you know, I think part of, you know, being a woman, being a mom, it, if, if you are, you know, kind of prone to that intellectual way of life or creative way of life, that it kind of, you do it impulsively. You don't, you can't stop yourself from pursuing these things or thinking about things or writing or reading. And um, I think the richer your life gets and your, and the more you develop even your inner self, like you said, Jane, like the better mom you are, you know, the more that you can, you know, teach your children and model for them. So I think that all goes together. I don't think that any mom who's pursuing um, creative endeavors or reading or writing is doing, I think she's only bettering her family if she develops those things that she's naturally drawn to. I love that. And I, I just want to say also there, there's always that sort of thing in your mind of, oh my gosh, what would I be making if I didn't have kids? What would I be doing? But I, I've also been thinking a lot about what am I making now that I wouldn't be making if I didn't have kids? And I think that's that's really worth reminding yourself. Um, at least for me, the the year after I had my first child, I made more and better work than I was making before. So it's really easy to think, oh, if we didn't have kids, we would be, we would be T.S. Eliot. But I think at least, at least my experience has been the, the, the more children I have, um, the better my work becomes because it just becomes more connected to different kinds of people. And there's, there's new people in my in my work. And that's really helpful. So I would just encourage anyone who either is expecting or has little kids and is thinking like, oh my gosh, I'm never going to create again. Don't think of it that way. Think of it instead. What you create is it is actually going to be better because you are getting deeper and, and more rounded and wiser as a person. And that's going to start showing up in your art. And I think you're, you're going to have your mind blown by what you can do as a result of being a parent. And it's not about you're not losing out. These two things are going to build on each other. That's right. I totally agree with that. Something I'm, I've become... Go ahead, Tessa. Oh, I'm just... I'm grateful I don't have to be a banker like T.S. Eliot, too. Because that would yeah. be... <laughs> so, I'm so right. glad to be what... Yeah, be a mother and teacher instead. But I think I think it goes for... goes for fathers, too. You know, like... like I, I, I pay attention to mothers and writers a lot, but also most men who write do not have, they don't write for a living. They have to fit yeah. it in somewhere. And it's might be before an awful day at the office or a soul sucking day at the office. And so there's a similar challenge uh, to that, but also, yeah, but also it, it can be done if, and it does make you, I mean, I remember one of our, one of our friends, he, he does, you know, he does languages work and teaching. And, uh, after he got married, he's already just like world-class. And then my husband's like, he, he's better. Like he is more yeah. focused. 
he's he has a family now like he's there is something that changed and he grew in his work as well because he was growing as a person also something i've become really attuned to um is there's a tendency that i see a lot at the playground and other places of parents to interrupt children and inject themselves in children's play and not let the kids just play. So my youngest is three now, which is a lot different than like going to the park with a one-year-old or a two-year-old versus a three is like a big difference. So I just bring a, I can just bring a book now and I just sit and read and let the kids do their thing. But looking around, it's very rare. And like parents do this exhausting thing where they're like following the kid around and really being part of every game and not letting the kids play with each other. Because when the parent, the kid's always happy. Like kids love it when mom or dad plays. But then they never get a chance to play with each other in a free way. And so like I took my it's really smoky here. I live out in the Pacific Northwest and every summer in the American West, we get wildfire smoke, which is fine. We like forest wildfires are part of forest life. And it's just part of life out here. Um, if there weren't forest fires, that would be, uh, it would be a bad thing. But when it's really smoky out, it can be tough, you know, cause you can't the kids running around outside a lot when it's real smoky is is hard and so i took the i took my girls to the children's museum and i just brought a book with me and i let them you know go do whatever and i sat and read but i realized that like the whole children's museum was full of mostly moms but some dads following their kids around you know uh which is hard you know um because uh, like I think like Tessa, what you said earlier really makes sense to me. Like like getting together with friends to do things. There's a two parts of that. One, it's nice to do things with friends, but the other thing is, if your friends have kids, it is a hundred times easier mm-hmm. to watch kids when their friends are there because mm-hmm. the kids, you know, run off and play uh, and do their own thing. But if you let them, you know, so. But that's for reading. I mean, writing is harder. I really I've been very slowly translating Genesis as this long project of mine. And I realized I started it up again, I don't know, a year ago. And I realized that there was this five year gap where I hadn't done any work. What is this five year gap? Oh, right. Like my daughter was born five years ago. (laughs) Yeah. And then it was only once they got a little bit older when I sort of had the, I don't know, energy or wherewithal. That I was still writing poems, but to like sit down and do a translation was just, you know, it wasn't a conscious choice to take that, to pause it for those years. But I just realized that it was almost the perfect uh, <laughs> um, gap in time. Uh which is fine. You know what I mean? Uh, <clears throat> it's, I don't know. Um, I'd rather have no books and children than children and lots of books. So, yeah. Um, 
So let's do the flip side of this, which is um, introducing children to literature, teaching, uh, teaching literature, maybe teaching is not even the right word, but so building, making that, passing that along to our children um, and making, you know, literature something that's alive and not, not a, a subject in school, but something that's part of part of life. I mean, have you all found that that's happening in your household? Something that's been, is there anything you find that's more successful or less successful? Um, I like to think just the fact that my daughters see me reading and like that, that in itself is like, you know, it's like, I'm not trying to live vicariously through their education, but just sharing something that I genuinely love myself but uh, curious about all of you and you know it's, uh, um going godward it sounds like your kids are you're you're further along uh than the rest of us are so yeah. um you're gonna have you know uh more um more knowledge just about you know you've sort of gone through more uh you've been a mom longer yeah, I mean, I, yeah anyway. I mean i think I mean, and I'm sure that Tessa and Jay would agree too. Like, you know, you want literature that, especially as they start to get older, a lot of character formation. I mean, that was a that was a big thing that was important to me was to integrate things that, you know, especially having two boys, like helped them to develop, you know, good character. And as they got older, they started to, you know, start, you know, like their they like their own things. And I'm not so much the person who's saying, read this, read this. Um, I mean, my, they, they've read Beowulf, they've read a lot of the classics, um, but my oldest gravitates toward things like David Goggins. Is that what his name is? Um, you Can't Hurt Me. Is that who his name is? Oh, yeah, the, David Goggins, yeah. the great doctor. Yeah, like that time. kind of stuff, you know, like toughen you up and, you know, that kind of stuff. I mean, he read Jordan Peterson, that type of thing. And um, my youngest is more into like biographies memoirs that type of thing so you know as they get older if you've I think fostered an interest in in learning and and that kind of thing I think as they get older they start to find their own paths their own interests and as long as they're reading things that are interesting and enriching then you know they're adults pretty much so can't really control what they're reading now mm -hmm. I think the thing that we've noticed that my children my mine are five and three, um, so we're still really small. But um, they love, they like to read books, and we do read a lot of books. Like my son, especially, is really—he's five. He's really starting to get into reading longer stories. So we read *The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe*. We've read like a little um, Arthurian book from Usborne. He, we have a kids' version of Macbeth, which he totally loves. He like went through the book, looking at the pictures, and he skipped over the Tempest and Midsummer and everything. And he's like, "I want to read this one because it was blood all over." <laughs> he was very into it. So he he's starting to get into those sorts of plots and that kind of a thing. But I've noticed that the thing that both of them respond to the most is oral oral tradition stuff they want me to tell them stories they want me to recite them poems without a page in between us so when they're if I ask them what they want they will ask for me to tell them a story um so that's something I've really had to work on is in my free time learning these stories making sure I know them well enough to tell them 
and then um, telling them over time, like my daughter's favorite Bible story is the fiery furnace. So we've sort of developed this. Um, it, 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 it's, it sounds like a Grimm's fairy tale when I tell it, cause we've, we've created those like repetitions within it. Um, things happen three times, like that kind of a thing. So it's not strictly accurate to the story from Daniel, but she loves it. She absolutely loves to be told the story and she loves um, to be, her favorite poem is Terrence, this is stupid stuff by Hausman, which causes a lot of problems because she runs around saying stupid, stupid. And it's from <laughs> Hausman, but I don't know how to explain to parents on the playground. Like, no, it's actually a literary reference. <laughs> like, She's not trying to be a stinker. So we've had to have lots of conversations about when you use the word stupid and when you don't. But um, they, they love, they love Osmandias. They love those kinds of um, sweeping and and rhyming poems and they just like to hear them so like we went on a trip and it was just me and the two kids and we flew to Orlando and had a massive layover and then flew to Charlotte so we were stuck in the airport for I think four hours or something and we just recited poems a lot of the time and they thought it was fun so they would make games where they would run in a circle around me in rhythm with the poem because they 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 like they like the feeling of this is a this is a thing that's happening. And when you're reading a book, there is a sense of we're sitting, we're reading the book. But when mom is telling the story, they can run and look out the window. They can go color and they're not missing out because they're not missing the pages. So I, I would encourage people. There's also a really good book by Bruno Bettelheim called The Uses of Enchantment, which is about the psychological benefits of being told fairy tales by your parents and how that actually helps children incorporate some common psychological issues. Like it helps them incorporate an Oedipal complex into their personality in a healthy way. Like we all have Oedipal complexes and it helps us bring those in or um, just this other psychological things that, that we can get, we can get stuck on that track. And these fairy tales are very um, thoughtfully developed in that they respond to our deepest psychological needs but they are most helpful when they are spoken to us from the parent orally that's just something that psychologists have discovered really interesting book but I've noticed that I even before I read that book I noticed wow my kids really respond to me telling a story over reading it and then now that my son is five we're really getting more into reading books with pages so that's been an interesting thing that I didn't expect but that we've had a lot of fun with is there a particular poetry anthology that you've found has lots of good good poems? yeah no that's a good question the one that we have right now it's called the barefoot book of poems and it's got poems from a lot of classic authors so it's got Yeats and Houseman and Auden and Shakespeare and Dunn and Milton and all of them but it also has some like it has Ogden Nash, it has um, Lewis Carroll. So it kind of has a, a mix of things. And so the kids always want to read Ogden Nash. I'll kind of bargain with them like, hey, we're going to read this John Donne poem and then we'll go and we'll read the Ogden Nash. So it kind of helps them, you know, they get to read their silly poem, but they, and they actually really end up enjoying the grown up poems. Like my son really likes, I don't remember if this one's in the book, but he really likes an Irish airman sees his fate. Um, cause it, he likes the, he likes the rhymes. He just really enjoys hearing those rhymes and those rhythms. So I think the barefoot book of poems is really good. 
Plow has a book called um, Poems to See By, which is illustrated by a cartoonist. And each of the poems is a different cartoon style. So it's really interesting. It's kind of, um, it's kind of, so a lot of the poems are pretty heavy. Like there's a lot of World War One poems and stuff. So I wouldn't just give it to my small child to look at. I curate and there's some that they don't get to look at because the illustrations are pretty graphic in places but there's a couple poems in there that they love they love the osmandius and they love the um invictus and hope is a thing with feathers and those kinds of things so those are the two that we're using right now mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. tessa i'm sure has some too because she's awesome at this oh man i i yeah jane is an awesome storyteller I'll <laughs> just yeah uh i'll say that first that's uh yeah it's interesting because i think we've we've idolized the book and reading a little bit in our culture. So, you know, when you have a baby, are you reading to them? It's like, who, who cares if you're reading to them, be telling them stories, be talking to them, letting, let them explore the, you know, the grass and trees and such that is, and that is foundational to absolutely everything, let alone the books that they will, that they can enjoy later. There's no rush, you know, sing them folk songs. Um, and, you know, sing that, you know, you know, they'll hear the liturgy and hymns sung, you know, and they'll, they'll eat it up. Uh, so I, I think that is one huge thing that it's kind of, you know, the oral tradition is where the literary tradition comes from just, just that's what happens in history, but also that's how it happens with us, uh, is if we fall in love with language, it's because we heard it. If we fall in love with the story, it's because we heard it. Even if we're reading silently, we're if we're reading it well, we're hearing it with the inner ear. Um, so, yeah, that's so that's something. So my 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 older kids are seven and five, and we've been a uh, yeah. I guess I guess you call it homeschooling, but I really try not to. I don't, I don't like um, the term school very much because it, it, it feels artificial, right? Just like we're going to read poetry we're, because we're reading poetry because that's what humans do. We're not schooling, um, you know, uh, I don't know. There, there, there's so much that I, we have lessons, but also sometimes we just, we just do something. We're learning as we go, but we're doing the human thing. Um, and learning how to do it at the same time. Uh, so we've done, yeah, we sing sing with our kids. We we tell them stories. I I need to get better at telling them stories, but we do, you know. But it's one of those things where, you know, it's easier to turn on a whatever, you know, and and, and someone that's reading the story instead. And I think there's a place for audiobooks. We definitely, like my kids love an A.A. A. A. Milne CD that they get the library and they just Same. have it all memorized. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, butter for the royal slice of bread. And, um, <laughs> and yeah, and they love reciting that stuff. They love reciting their rhymes. Um, but that's one of the best things for, you know, oh no, we live in a car culture and it's kind of awful in a lot of ways but then or or when you're at the airport we should be reciting poems and playing with rhymes and the other day we were my kids and I are trying to 
kind of do our own nursery rhymes, kind of, you know, our own version of Little Jack Horner or, or Limerick's or something and seeing if we can do rhymed lines. Um, and yeah, we're, you know, remember one car ride, I, I told Hansel and Gretel to them and it was, I remember it being striking because it was so often it's harder to do the, the good and life-giving thing. Oh my gosh. Yes. So it's easier to say like, guys, just be quiet. Let adults talk. And actually maybe I'll, I'll tell you this story and then duh. I love stories. I love fairy tales. I love theater. It'd be so stupid of me to turn down this opportunity to tell my kids a story. And so that, yeah, I think that's been huge. And then yeah, just filling your home with books, filling your home with music. Um, that is a huge thing. And even more so than reading to your kids, I think in, in some ways, um, at least my, my parents testify that like, yeah, we were worried about you, Tessa, because we didn't read to you as much as, you know, my older brother, but, but they had books around and I don't know you know, I think that was, that was one key thing. Uh, and but I, th- I think it's one of those things you, you know, Charlotte Mason has this idea and she's also very, yeah, she, yeah, the educator, Charlotte Mason, she wrote a lot about telling stories, hmm. putting down the book and telling the story, handing it on like it's a living thing because it is, um, and observing the world and knowing the grass before, you know, you, d- you don't have to look at a book right now. Just look at the grass, look at the trees, look at the sky. Um, and she also has this idea of, or, or she, she warns us against despising the children and there's different ways to despise them, but generally we, we treat them as less than what they are as less than a person as not worth our time. And one of those ways is when we, we dumb down stuff for them or think like, well, you wouldn't want this, you know. I don't know, this, this lovely, lovely little rhyme, we're going to give you, I don't know, some sort of, you know, there's lots of bad poetry out there, you know, bad verse in in children's books. Um, We can give them something that makes it harder for them to appreciate the thing they've been made for, to appreciate real goodness and beauty. And yeah, it's easier to do a lot of the time but when we think of it as what are we really doing? Are we, we being kinder to them by um, the, you know, the fake cheese, you know, <laughs> instead of the really good cheese? Um, that's, uh, we, we love cheese. So but like giving them the really good stuff so that uh, they know that goodness and beauty is so abundant. And so when they taste the, really the gruel of, um, you know, soul sucking things. It's, it's going to be, it's going to be less of temptation anyway, I think, but filling them with riches, um, it's exciting. There's, there's so much good stuff out there. We don't have to spend our time with, you know, what, what Mason calls twaddle. Um, (laughs) so. Well, I want to piggyback on that because that, that was really, really 
great, Tessa. And I think it carries back over to this idea of how to use a parent, create that space um, for creating. Mm -hmm. um, you can do both of these things at the same time. So if you're really learning to tell a fairy tale really well, you're working out basic principles of plot. Like if you're a novelist or a short story writer, you're figuring out, oh, okay, what is the motivation here? And you like, if you really, it's funny, if you really want to tell Goldilocks really well, you have to, you have to get into the head of Goldilocks and of all the bears. Cause it's a story that's almost entirely ambiguous. It's a fascinating little example of ambiguity in classic literature where they're, they're, Goldilocks is the heroine. We're spending most of the time with her, but she's also the one who's trespassing. And we're on the side of the bear and the baby bear stirs up the deepest of our emotional responses. But we also don't want anything bad to happen to Goldilocks. It's a really mature story. And when you start thinking about how am I going to tell it? Which voice am I going to use? You don't want the papa bear to be scary, but he also is an authority figure and it, it actually helps you do some kind of grown up narrative things or with poetry. Like we sometimes do this thing where the kids will ask me to like make up a poem for them on the spot and they want it to be metered and rhymed. And they give me a couple of the characters that they want to have in it. So then I have to sit there and be like, OK, so this is a poem about a mouse. And then in the poem, he's going to meet an eagle and a beaver and a muskrat and it has to be metered and rhymed and then I just have to do it and that's the game and it's it it keeps me on my toes because I'm practicing meter and rhyme and it's really fun for them it's more fun for them than if I read them something so I think it can it sounds really hard to do these things but it also if you are a parent who wants to be creating you can do double duty here and then when you go to sit down and create it's like well, you didn't spend your time with your kids reading twaddle. You spent your time with your kids kind of getting your juices flowing. And then when you sit down to make, you're already kind of in that space. So it can be really helpful and it can help you sort of just bridge the gap there a little. Hopefully that makes it sound more fun. <laughs> and you can sit back to... later and let them encounter the, the poetry, not follow them around the playground, but um, yeah, like, step aside and let them enjoy the book or the painting or you know we don't when they're when they have those uh practices and loves um already in their lives we can have they can have their own relationships with different kinds of books different kinds of poetry you know places and trees um and, you know, and we don't have to orchestrate that. We can, we can let them have, have that encounter. A, a few things come to mind. Right? When I was growing up, my dad would tell us stories uh, and had like recurring characters. The stories are just kind of like ongoing epics. And it's been really fun now that he has brought those characters back um, to read, uh, to tell to my, to my daughters. Um, Jane's heading out early. Do you have any last words you want to share with us? No, this was just really, really fun. And I super appreciate it. Okay. Thank you for, yeah. uh, for everything. And we'll, um, we'll link to your play. Uh, oh, yeah. Else. So, um, everyone go okay. 
and and read Jane's play or see it <laughs> performed. I don't know if there would be chances for that. Or if you want, it works really well. We just did this in Colorado with a group. We just did a dramatic reading so you didn't have to memorize it. And people just got costumes out of their closets. And it was I wasn't involved at all. I just went to watch it. And it was so fun. So if people want to do something like that, it it's it, it, I was shocked at how well it went. So, yeah, kind of a fun thing. Great. Thank you. This was really fun. God bless you all. Good to see you, Jane. Bye, Jane. Thank Bye. you. Of course. Thank you. Um, it, reading plays aloud is great. I was in a reading group in Kentucky where every week we'd show up and the guy who led the group would pass out a play that none of us had heard of or read before. And we'd read through it. And then we'd say, see you next week. We'd talk about it a little bit. And it was amazing. Um, but in any case, to finish... To finish my thought, my yeah, my dad has brought back these characters now to tell the stories to my daughters, and um, and they're invested in it. You know, they they're already planning. Like the two, there's two characters who are going to get married, and so the next time my parents come to visit, my daughters are going to like decorate for the wedding. You know, just from characters in the story, and I I like telling stories, making up stories too. And they're usually absurd Um, because I don't plot. I don't like plan out the plot. It's just sort of like, oh, it's bedtime. Okay, well, see what I can come up with. Like the one I told that went on for a long time was was Princess Hippolina. Who rode on a singing hippo and they were off on a like on an epic quest for blueberry pie, you know. But then they encountered all kinds of problems and, you know, met friends and stuff on the way. Um, but that's a good reminder that it of just you know telling stories or I'm horrible at, at memorizing poems, but um, that doesn't just have to be reading. It's a good. That's a good yeah. reminder. Um, There's also family stories. Just because I I don't I don't think I'm great at making up stories myself on on the spot mm -hmm. so that's it's, it's a wonderful thing to do uh but i i find myself telling the stories my dad would tell about just his mm -hmm. life to my kids and ideally he would be telling them the story but also i i'm telling them making a story of something that happened to me or but especially their yeah their their family their ancestors you know mm -hmm. keeping those stories alive Sometimes there, there's always great family lore. Mm -hmm. So, like, I remember I heard a great one recently, which is that my great grandfather was a surveyor for coal mine for coal mining companies in southern Illinois, but he was also a gentleman farmer. So he had a little farm uh, near Harrisburg and. He so I knew all that, but the family lore I learned recently was that he was famous or infamous for riding his horse around the farm in the nude. He was a like local character uh, who would you know he had his land and he would he would go for nude nude horseback riding sounds terrible to me. Uh, just thinking about it for half a second, but anyway, he was famous for for going about the farm. Uh, it was pretty funny. Um, Anyway, I don't. I haven't told that particular story. I'm sure my girls would think it was really uh, funny, though. Um, 
Okay. Go ahead, Godward. What you want. <laughs> I've I've talked a lot. So why don't you do you do you have some questions and we can we can chat for a little bit and then and then wrap things up. Question that I think I, I was thinking about it um whenever Jane was still here and you were talking about this, you know, how you came to translate, write this, um, this article for the lamp um with the translation. And I guess, you know, you two for sure have more writing experience for, for me, for me than I'm I'm guessing Donald, I don't know how much you have published. Do you have a lot, do you have published things, Donald? Some stuff? Not much, you know. I I yeah. um I write things sometimes. I put things on Substack sometimes. So I have a few dozen yeah. readers, you know. Yeah. So I would say, you know, Tessa, you and Jane probably have some some more credibility and just more experience. And and I'm just curious what advice you would have for for people who are just starting to write, who want to explore the craft, who want to develop um their writing style, their voice. How does one get started? What should they do? Um, what should they read? How should they think? Um, what advice do you have? Yeah, uh, I think one one thing that someone could do is pursue more deeply the writers that you really love and see what what they're doing maybe you know maybe you enjoy them and maybe that's not quite you know if you want to write like them but there's something about them that is enchanting you so find out what that is reread the, the things you love as well as find out what those writers loved and see what shaped them and it's kind of it's there's kind of two things one one is reading deeply and sometimes not even reading, um, you know, if you read deeply a few really great things, right? It's like, you know, what Shakespeare in the Bible and whatever, you know, Milton or something. If you read those things really well and, you know, had a lot of folktales in your belt, you, you'll probably be fine as, as a writer. So it's, it's not as much reading many things as reading them well, I think. Mm -hmm. um, but you want to, but yeah, read things that you haven't, you know, read things that, that strike you that maybe are different from what you expect. Stretch your, your reading um, so that you can expand the, kind of expand the possibilities of what you'd like to write. And then the other hand, I think it's, it's huge to find people with whom to write and especially kind of two different kinds of people and sometimes they're in one person but um or one group and one is is a master to whom you can be apprenticed and this someone that that uh can guide you personally and sometimes you can there are great writing books out there um mary oliver has a great book on writing you know verse if one's into poetry um yeah there's lot lots of good books on how you know, how to write the craft of X, Y, Z, but there's nothing like, um, having someone who is willing to tell you where you can go, you can go from here. And then on the other hand, having people who are kind of, kind of your cheerleaders. And sometimes that they can be just like a friend who's just like, I'm so glad you wrote this. This is great. And 
you know, I have no comments. I've no, you know, just, I'm just happy yeah. writing. Um, mm-hmm. But others who, others too, who are, who will tell you, or maybe who are writers themselves or just good readers who, who can say, this is great. I love you. I'm glad you're writing. And here's a suggestion for how to make this stronger. And having mm-hmm. that community is just huge. And that's, yeah. that's why people do MFA programs is to find that community, yeah. but you don't have to do that to find those people. Have you actually yeah, found good. someone to apprentice under? Has that been a part of your life? Well, I'll tell you, Jane and I both did the same MFA program uh, because there there was a really awesome poet uh, to whom we wanted to be apprenticed. Um, Jane did it first and I heard from her how amazing this this person was so we um so I said okay I'm gonna try to do this um but there's also I mean through there are different ways of opening that door to to people who are serious writers and I think I've met so many gracious writers who are willing to uh you know read what you have um of course, there's always, you know, you're always worried that um, this, you know, this person probably doesn't want to have someone else come to them and say, so I'm a writer too. Would you read what I wrote? But well, why not? You know, ask them. They, they, they might be able to, to tell you. And if you're serious, I think um, you are like, you're very likely to find people who are willing to uh to go, yeah, to, to mentor you, even just for part of the, part of the time, mm-hmm. part of the road. Yeah. yeah. Pound and Auden took a lot of writers under their wings. Mm-hmm. Auden would famously at parties only, he would just spend time with the kind of young unknown writers and sort of eschew the famous ones. And then yeah. Pound, of course, was extremely generous in his correspondence. I mean, he was and people would tr- travel to Rapallo and sort of study under him. He was also a madman, but, uh, you know, G- anyway, his, his correspondence is wild. You know, you can, I don't know, there's sort of um, diligent scholars of modernism that have um, published like endless volumes of it. Uh, I wonder, I mean, it seems hard to imagine many people like that now who who both have that that generosity of spirit and that learnedness um i don't know i i wrote a, i've written some mortifying in retrospect letters like i wrote to louise cluck who you know his poems i really admire and she actually wrote a nice she wrote me back which was kind of remarkable uh nice. i always imagine people like this being bothered all the time you know but I don't even know if that's true. Like, are, is Louise Gluck being bothered all the time? I don't know. And then I wrote to William Logan. Uh, he wrote me back as well. Um, but then I don't know, like where did where to go from there? I felt like it was I was um, it was wrong to impose myself on on uh, people like that. Um, Yeah, I, I, I think, I think you might as well. <laughs> and, and yeah, sometimes not, 
something comes to nothing, you write someone say, really enjoy your work. Thank you. Maybe opening the door for, for more, but uh, people love to know that they're being read and mm-hmm. that you've made a difference or they, they've made a difference. That's, that is huge. So at the very least, um, very least you can do that. And then, yeah, sometimes, yeah. And there are all sorts of stories, right. Of people, um, becoming good friends, becoming, you know, mentoring other, other people through a letter, just, yeah, just starting with a letter of admiration or, um, and, but yeah, but yeah. And then you also hear stories of just like, Oh, here, here comes another person who, you know, wants to, I know, meet me and I'm going to tell them the wrong address or something, you know, some reclusive like writer or something, but, uh, but you know, uh, if you're, if you're polite on your end and they, you're, you're not responsible for what, how they respond, <laughs> if they're not polite, but usually, usually people are. So. Going Godward, I'll give the last question to you. Oh man. Um, well, hold on. Let me pull up my list that I wrote out. I had a whole list. I don't know if I have any really good ones to end with. I may have to turn it back over to you. Um, let's see here. Um, okay. This is a this is kind of a fun question, I think. Can we end up a fun question? Does it have to be serious? Does it have to be can it be fun? Fun's allowed. Let's okay. fun. I'll, I'll permit it. Let's have fun. Okay. What's a book that you would be ashamed to admit you haven't read or have read and were supposed to like it and didn't? I was supposed to like it. I don't know which one that that second question is that the second part sounds sounds particularly fun. Yeah, you can answer either or both. Yeah. Um that's funny because I just I just started um Edmund Burke's Re- Reflections in the Revolution in France, and I feel like I I should have read that a while ago. Um, but I'm also I've not I've not finished War and Peace either. Um but but a, a book that I read that I didn't like that I feel like I was supposed to, um, I feel like of most books I read, I, really, I like quite a bit, uh, but there was, oh, what was it? I think it was, um, there was a poet I read during my MFA program that I did not like. Um, I feel like I, I, I guess I'm, it's hard to find think of a book that I I definitely read books that I detested um but they tended to be short and they're kind of well hmm maybe Stardust right. it doesn't Newman. have to be exclusively like a book being yeah something else what if you're like yeah. I don't know I never really thought about it then I know. hate Wallace Stevens Oh yeah, <laughs> supposedly I think, I think I, the great, you know, like the greatest poet of the twentieth century, or something, according to some people. But yeah, I, 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 don't, he, I, I can't make heads or tails of him. Yeah, I kind of like the only poem of his I kind of like is the one about the jar on the hill in Tennessee. Yeah, that's an all right poem. But <laughs> most of it, I try, I try to read him, and I can't. I like the idea of him working an office job and writing all his poems, but. Yeah. 
Yeah. Was it T.S. Lewis that, or T.S. or C.S. Lewis that said that T.S. Eliot was like a terrible poet? That's like funny. Like oh, man. Lewis. Yeah. There was just, uh, yeah, someone, someone's Substack just talked about how they were just such rivals and then, and then bonded mm-hmm. over working on the revision of the Psalter uh, later in life, which is just such a great story. But I think, I think the strongest reactions I've had with books are uh, historical fiction that feel like modern people in medieval clothing. Like it's, it's, it, it is like cosplay. It's not, it's just like, you guys are all saying the, the, the same thing you'd say nowadays. You just are dressed up differently or fairy tales that are just, um, I don't know, almost anti-fairy tales because uh, mm-hmm. they um there was a fairy tale I read years ago that was basically yeah uh, seemed almost prescient in how you know the the savior of the story was was a scientist and it was very it was almost like proto-transhumanist or something it was just mm-hmm. really like technology was the savior and I was like mm-hmm. I don't okay. like this this is awful mm-hmm. Oh, so, burn that book. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> sounds, yeah. sounds pretty awful. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. A friend of mine likes to say, he'll say, oh, I've never read Proust in French. Now, he's never read him in English either. But yeah, he'll say, oh, yeah, I, I've never read War and Peace in Russian. Yeah. <laughs> well, I want to read Dante in Italian. This is This is what Jane and I have been wanting to do, just like get together and learn Italian by reading um or at least you know Dante's Italian and maybe that's I'm there's so many translations of Dante now there's Mm -hmm. always a new one popping up and kind of makes me want to just I'm just gonna go read the Italian guys and figure it out as I go I have Anthony Eslin's translation of the Inferno and it's like a I mean it's like a side by side so it's like Italian and then English and um, he did lectures yeah he has his he has his lectures on audible of the divine comedy which are phenomenal i listened to all yeah. of them they were he's, excellent yeah. yeah he's such a great teacher and i mean mm-hmm. italian too it just he's gonna right right he's mm-hmm. gonna give you that give, give you the italian yeah. as well so i've never read dickens that's my my i don't think i've read a that this is my I there are some Dickens novels I have not read yet, but I'm gonna read them with my family and make up for it. Um I, but it's yeah, it's okay. Um we so read a lot of Roald Dahl, uh and he's just great. Um I reread his memoirs last year and they're also just incredible. Um but I thought it'd be funny to do a Matilda curriculum with my older daughter, read all of the books that Matilda reads, which, you know, it's a lot of Dickens and uh, Jane Austen. So, you know, it's it's great books, but it would be pretty funny to do a, um, I'm sure someone out there has done that, but the Matilda homeschool uh, curriculum. <laughs> yeah. Um, we market that. Good yeah, selling. I guess. Uh, and even like she's doing the BFG right now, which we've done before and it's such a grotesque but funny book um but the bfg learns to write by reading nicholas nicholsby over and over and over again yeah uh well thank you 
uh, Tessa, for joining us today. Um, hopefully, this is the first of many Doomer Optimism literary hours because, uh, as important as um, farming and ecology are, uh, literature is obviously a lot more important. Um, maybe not, but uh, anyway, uh, uh, <laughs> Everyone go and read the translation of Dream of the Rude. And if you look up Tessa's name, you'll find her writing in a, a myriad of places. Um, and you write all kinds of things, like uh, essays and book reviews, and you write poems. Anyways, variety, like uh, lots of interesting um, uh, writing. I You wrote a review of a novel um, that I... That I did an interlibrary loan for i'm going to read it uh it's published by wise blood books um was this works of mercy works of mercy yeah oh so good so good sally thomas yeah sally thomas's works of mercy which sounds really uh interesting so go read that review and then you can go read the novel um wise blood books is one of these kind of interesting like print on demand publishers that have been popping up uh there's so many little publishers doing interesting things um and uh we will see you again soon um here on the doomer optimism podcast